Let's jump right to it. If you'll find Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bible, we're going to talk about faithful faith. Now that sounds redundant, doesn't it? But that's really not redundant. And I think by the time we get to the end of today's service, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about by faithful faith. You know that 78% of people who live in the United States call themselves Christians. 78% of people who live in America say, I'm a Christian. Now, am I the only one who, on hearing that statistic, goes, really? There seems to be a, an issue there. <laughs> if 78% of this country were faithful followers of Jesus Christ, it would seem that our country would look very different than it does right now. So either, either that number is not accurate or either there's a misunderstanding about what a Christian really is. The scriptures give us a picture of what a true believer looks like. I'm afraid that there's a misunderstanding among Americans and perhaps maybe even within the church that a simple belief is enough to bring saving faith in the life of a person. But the scriptures, I think, will show us something a bit different. That there's a step, there's another step beyond just belief that brings us into a relationship with Christ. You see, what, what brings us through the path of salvation begins first with the gospel, with the message of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, the provision that he's made for us to be forgiven and be made right with the Father and experience salvation. We begin with the gospel, and first we hear the gospel. It's, it's taught, it's proclaimed, and we hear it. And then we move from hearing to understanding it, to comprehend it. We have to hear it, and then we have to understand and comprehend the gospel. And then we make the choice whether we want to believe it to be true or not. And that's usually as far as people get in some cases. They hear it, they understand it, and they'll say, yes, I believe that's true. But scripturally, there's another step. And there's one of two directions that scripture teaches that people go when they get to that process. We hear it, we understand the gospel, we believe it, and then there's one of two ways. We either commit to it and begin to move forward, or we fall away from it. And that's what the scriptures would call an apostate or apostasy. is one who has professed faith and belief in Jesus, but then has turned away from it and walked in an opposite direction. I think when that 78% is thrown out there, what that means is 78%, 78 of Americans believe in Jesus or that Jesus is real. But there's a, there's a step beyond that. Of what, of, of what true Christians look like. We want to get beyond that point of belief. Beyond just saying, yes, I believe it's true. The question we have to answer is, because it's true, then what? What, what happens in your life? What, what decision and choice do you make as a result of the fact that you believe the gospel to be true? And so that's what I think we're going to answer this morning. In Hebrews 10, there are three um, indications, three characteristics of a believer's life that has followed and said, I, I not only believe, but I'm following the path. I'm, I'm committed 
to what Christ has done for me. And we're going to look at that real quick this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. And there's three things I've kind of given you an outline. The first one is that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we get close. And that's Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 22. Let's take a look at that. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty conscience have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. For the audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And for them, to go into the presence of God was something that you didn't do. It was forbidden. That was, that was the holy of holies in the temple. And that was only the place that the priest was allowed to go. And that only once a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, let's go right into the presence of God, these Jewish, these Jewish Christians are going, wow, can we do that? Is that, is that possible? Because we've been taught all of our life that we can't go there. He, he reveals to them in this. He says, because of the blood of Christ, because of his sacrifice, we sang about it in the song, I believe. When that veil was ripped from top to bottom, he was opening up that holy of holies and says, anybody can come. Anybody can come into my presence. Anybody can come into the very place where I dwell and be with me. And he says, those, those first phrases in verse 19, he says, and so, meaning the first nine chapters, I've, he's been, the author has been talking about what Christ has done and what leads to salvation. And so now he says, so, as or therefore, your Bible may say in verse 19, therefore, since all, everything that I've been talking about in these first nine and a half chapters, because of all this, this is what you should do. And he says, let's, he said, boldly enter into the presence of God. Because of Jesus, we can be directly in God's presence and trusting him for forgiveness and to cleanse us. See, the, the, the priest even had to go through a ceremonial cleansing before he could go into the Holy of Holies. And he says, because of the blood of Jesus, that's, that's happened already. This, this part of, of this passage is a call to worship, fellowship, and confession, a communion with God. And when we come into corporate worship in this place, in this room, we have to come with the understanding that He is here with us, that He is not far away, that when we come into this house, we are coming into the presence of God. As if we are in the Holy of Holies. But this is my fear. Is that maybe too often, myself included, we come into this place where the presence of God dwells, but we ourselves are not in the presence of God. And you may think, well, is that even possible? It's totally possible. We come into this place and we're here physically. But in our hearts and our minds, we're somewhere else. 
And Hebrews says, enter boldly into the presence of Christ. Christ has made the provision for that. He has torn the curtain. It's, it's free access to me. And how crazy it is for us to come together corporately where, the, where Scripture says if just two or three people are gathered together in my name, I will be there. So he says, I'm here. But it's, it's scary how maybe we can come in and out of the presence of God and not even know it because we're so unaware. He says, come boldly. When we come to, when we come to worship, like come into his presence, come with confession, come with fellowship, come with worship. And that doesn't just happen here. It happens in our homes. It happens in our cars. It happens on a daily basis wherever we are. That we can come into the presence of God at any moment, in any time, because Christ has done that. So get close. He says, take advantage of that. Don't just meagerly and meekly walk in like, like you're afraid. Jesus has made that path. He's opened it up. Go before your Father. Be bold. He says we can enter into the presence of God with boldness because of this. But look at James chapter 4. Come close to God and He will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. I love the book of James. We're studying the book of James with our students on Wednesday nights. And part of the reason I love James is he just comes right out and says it. And he gives us a very basic principle here. You draw close to the Father, and he will draw close to you. When I hear Christians complain about and say, well, I don't don't feel the presence of God in my life. I I don't feel close to God. That's probably not his fault. James makes it very clear. You draw close to God, God comes and draws close to you. And he says, wash your hands, purify your hearts because your loyalty is divided. Maybe that presence, when we come come into a place where his presence is and we don't feel it and we don't experience it, maybe it's because our hearts are divided. Because our loyalty is, is with something else other than with God. So he says, take all those loyalties and push those other things that distract you and push them away. And when you come into my presence, get close to me. Don't, don't, don't stand at a distance. Don't stand outside the courts like, like the Jews used to have to where they couldn't come into where I am. You, you can come right here. You can come right here where I am. Get close to me. Quit staying away. And then he goes on to the second one and he says, not only do we get close, but... Once we get close, we hold tight. Look at Hebrews 10, 23. Verse 23 says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Once we get close into the presence of God, we hold tight. And he says, what do we hold tight to? We hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. Don't, don't just believe, but abide in it. That belief, hold tightly to it and stay there. Abide in it. And he says, hold on to our hope. Well, what is our hope? Our hope is that everything that God has promised will come true. That everything that he says of himself and all the promises that he makes are true. And that we've trusted those. And we hold on to that hope. 
And he says, hold tightly to it. Don't let go. This is a call to persevere. To keep walking. To keep moving forward in your faith. To never quit. Why is it that so many people maybe begin with God and then they fall away and they quit? There's probably lots of reasons. Some, for some, maybe it's just they try faith and they, and they think it's too hard. It's just too difficult. The standard that they think they have to keep, they, they just can't, they can't deal with it. Maybe it's too demanding. Maybe there are things of the, of the world that they are still loyal to and it's difficult for them to, to break away from. And they decide, man, I can't. I, I, like, I can't let go of this. Or maybe there are unmet expectations. Maybe they enter into faith thinking that there are these expectations and then they find out that that life in Christ is maybe different than what they thought. And so they decide it's not for them and they turn away. That's, that's those people we were talking about at the beginning. You either, you either commit to it and continue forward in it or you get to belief and then you begin a little ways and then you're like, no, this isn't for me and you turn away from it. It's like the parable of the sower. The seeds that were thrown on the ground, they, on, the, on the shallow soil, they sprouted up quickly but then once the thorns or, and the heat scorched them, they died. Once things got hard and difficult, there really wasn't any faith there to begin with. Let's look at some texts in uh, John, in the Gospel of John. First in John chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. Look at this. It says, Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Talking about Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you what? Say that word. Remain faithful to my teaching. There were lots of people that believed in Jesus when he was walking the earth, performing his miracles. But there were very few that remained with him, that remained faithful to his teaching. He's like, you can believe in me, but you're not really my disciple unless you remain faithful. Unless you're able to persevere, unless you're able to get through those difficult moments or those get past your own selfishness and break away from the, from the loyalties to the world. Look at John chapter 2, 23 and 25. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. See that word begin? They began to trust in him. They began to believe. They thought, ooh, I, maybe this guy's for real. And, and belief began to sprout up in them. But look at verse 24. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. Here's, here are people... Who because, it says in verse 23, because of the signs, they began to trust in him. Because of the miracles he was doing. Because of the free food he was giving out. They began to trust in him. And they began to believe. And they were saying, Jesus, we believe you. We believe you. But because Jesus saw through the surface and he could see their hearts. Jesus actually kind of looks at him and says, but I don't believe you. 
they're saying, Jesus, we believe, we believe. But Jesus is looking at him and he's going, no, you really don't. You've got to get past that belief. Look at John 12. John 12, 42 through 43. Many people did believe in him. Here again, a big crowd, lots of people believing in Jesus. However, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now here you have the Jewish religious leaders who are listening to Jesus and they're seeing him and, and they're enemies of him, but some of them are watching and they're going, wow, this guy may be legitimate. He may be, he may be the real thing. And they begin to believe, but they can't get past that. It says they wouldn't admit it. Why? Because of fear. Fear the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue because they loved human praise more than they loved the praise of God. They liked their status. They liked who they were. They liked the position they had. They liked the way people regarded them. They liked the way people treated them when they come walking down the street. They liked the power that they had. And even though there was belief in their heart, they weren't willing to admit it because they were afraid of what they might lose. And so Jesus says that kind of belief gets you nowhere. It doesn't save you. It doesn't transform you. It's just there. This isn't saving faith. Evidence of a saving faith is a faith that perseveres. It's a faith that knows that God will keep his promises. And no matter what circumstance or sacrifice we have to make, that his promises will always be true. So we choose not to ever quit, not to ever turn back and turn away. John MacArthur uh, said it very bluntly, but he said it this way. You can always tell a true believer because they're around at the end. You want to know whether you really have faith in Christ or not. If you want to know if you really have salvation, then you're sticking around. You're not going anywhere. You're, you're faithful no matter what happens. It's one of the signs of a true believer. And then lastly, he says we get close and then we hold tightly to that hope. And then the last thing in this passage is we plug in. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Because of these things, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, he's told us that we get close by coming into the presence of God in the way that Christ is made, tearing the veil. And then, when we, and then we hold tight to our hope. But that's difficult in this world, isn't it, sometimes? So it's no accident that he talks about his church right after he tells us to hold tightly. Because what is the best, what is the place... In the environment and the family that God has given you as a believer to help you hold tightly to the hope that he tells you to hold on to. He's given you the church. 
He's given you your family here. And he says, we abide in our faith by staying connected to Christ's church. By staying plugged into it. It says that we're to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let me ask you something. Is it easier to show love and good works by yourself? Or to do it with other people? It's easier to do it with other people. Part of the reason you got up and came to worship this morning is because you knew you wouldn't be the only one here. And I'm very certain that for most of us, if we're honest, and we thought we were going to wake up this morning and come into this house of worship, and you would be the only person sitting in those pews, you probably wouldn't have shown up. You know why? Because... The faithfulness of the other people here motivate you to be faithful. When you come to church and you see other people loving Jesus, doesn't it motivate you to love Jesus more? When you see other people serve, doesn't it motivate you to serve? When you come to Bible study in your Sunday school class and you come and your teacher is prepared and they've come to teach, doesn't that motivate you to want to be there? He's put us together for a reason. He's given us the church for a reason. We, we motivate each other. When I see you love, it makes me want to love. When I hear you talk about the truth that you're learning, it makes me want to learn truth. And the best place for you to go to get that motivation is the local church. And he says here, don't forsake it. Do not neglect our meeting together. As some do. See, what was happening is these Jewish Christians were, were gathering up with the church. And then they were getting caught up in their old, in their old ways, in their old Jewish practices. And they would, they would decide, well, I'm not going, I'm not meeting together here. I'm going to go do my old things. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, look, stay with us. Don't leave us. Like, you, you need us. You need, we need each other. Don't, don't abandon the family. Every time you're not here, it affects all of us. We need you. Don't fall back into your old Jewish ways. There's another reason he says not to forsake it. And he's talking to, to the church then and he's talking to the church now. He said it's not just about Christians coming together and motivating each other to love and good works. But there are also those people who are on the edge of belief. Those people who believe, but they've not yet made that step in the commitment of salvation. Part of the reason we come and gather together is because there are people who are here this morning who are in that place. And part of your role as the church is to show them and let them see to motivate them that it is worth making the commitment. It's not just about us. It's about the world outside, that when they come in and they're curious and they believe, it's our responsibility to be here, to be a functioning body so that they can see what the church is really supposed to look like. So that they may come to that faith, that faith that saves, that faith that goes beyond belief but steps into a commitment 
this last one is, is a concern because I think we see a pattern in the world where, where the local church is becoming more and more optional for people of faith. That it's just an, it's just an option. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that if you, if you want to be, if you want to be faithful, to be motivated to loving good works and to motivate others to loving good works and really experience salvation, then gathering together with your with the church is not an optional thing. It shouldn't just be an option. It should be a, 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 a commitment. And this isn't hear my hear my heart, church. This is not one of those. Oh, the preacher's making me feel guilty because I'm not coming to church. It has nothing to do with it. I'm motivated to love and good works when I'm here. And so when I, and, and I'll be honest with you, I even shy away from it sometimes because people have that stigma. Don't you sometimes, you want to tell somebody you miss seeing them at church, but you don't because you're afraid that they'll think you're overbearing if you say something to them. Or they're afraid that you'll, they'll think you're legalistic. Like, oh, well, I miss church. And they're all on my case because I wasn't at church. So when somebody's not at, you don't see them for two or three or four weeks. You don't say anything to them because you don't want to make them mad or you don't want to offend them. Let me tell you why. If I see you in my heart, like if, if I run into you somewhere and I haven't seen you in a few weeks and I say, hey, man, I miss you. I miss seeing you at church. I'm not saying that because I'm the youth pastor. I'm not saying that because I get paid to say that. I'll say that because when I come here, I'm motivated to love and good works. And when I come here, there are amazing people in this family whom I love very much. And if you're not here, I want you to be motivated to love and good works the same way I am. So when you're not here, I, we genuinely want you to be. It's not so that our number will go up or so our offering will be higher. That has nothing to do with it. Hebrews says that we come together to motivate each other to love and good works. And that's what we should do. In all of these things together, coming close, drawing near to the presence of God, and then holding tightly, persevering, making a commitment that doesn't quit. And the way we do that, and the way we keep that commitment strong, is not to neglect coming together. I know life is crazy. I know there are lots of things. People are busy, and we use busyness for a reason. And I know about 80% of my busyness has to do with the church. So I live in a different world than most people. But it's just true it is easier to be faithful to Jesus when you're plugged into the church one of the things that I that I laugh at um, we all know how dependent we've become on our cell phones and uh, my kids and the students anytime I'm with them one of the most tragic things that can ever happen in the life of a teenager is for this battery to go dead and I'm so not kidding. You're laughing. But I'm not joking. Like, it is earth-shattering tragic if this happens. Because for this thing to go dead, completely 
disconnects you from life itself. And we'll even, as adults, we'll make sure our phones are charged all the time. I can't stand, I'll be honest with you, I can't stand for mine to not be working. And so, because I want my phone to keep working the way it's supposed to, when the battery gets low and I see it, I'm going to make sure it's charged all the time so that I'm not without it. If you were a cell phone and your faith was this phone, this place is the charging station. I don't think anybody would expect their phone to last for three weeks after you charge it one time. But most people, even within the church, consider themselves to be regular attenders if they come to one service every three weeks, three to four weeks. That's what the surveys say. That's what the numbers say. So I'm pretty sure if we, if you were told you can only charge your phone once every three weeks, your phone's not going to work the way it's supposed to. For our faith and our commitment to Christ and, and the family to work the way it's supposed to work. You got to have it plugged in. Regular. On a consistent basis. It doesn't have anything to do with numbers or expectations or, or any of that stuff. It has to do with life. You want to only be alive in Christ for as long as like one charge is going to last. We want this thing to be working all the time. Our faith needs to be the same way. Our faith needs to be motivated and active and living and strengthened all the time. So Hebrews says, you need it. You need each other. Don't neglect it. And a sign of real faith, real saving faith, I believe, is a love for Jesus' church. And the reason I say that is because if we, if we follow after Christ and we say we love Jesus, then we also have to love the same things that Jesus loves. And if we love what Jesus loves, there's nothing on the planet that he loves more than his church. Because his church is his bride. He gave himself up for the church. And so I get, I get frustrated when I hear Christians talking about how they don't need the church. They can follow Jesus on their own. Now you think you can. But you really can't. We need that intimacy in the presence of God. We need the steadfast perseverance of holding on to our hope. And we need each other. We have to be plugged into each other. We need what the church gives. And the church needs what we have to give. And when all those things work together, then you've got a life that's vibrant in Christ.